Well, welcome everybody. I'm glad you're here. Um, Laura is no stranger to our ministry. She has spoken, gosh, I don't know, this is your fifth time, Laura? Um, she is currently the Director of Outpatient Services at Foundations Recovery in Midtown and also at Talbot Dunwoody. She has a huge resume of uh, background experience. I'm not going to read all that because I want uh, her to have time. You can talk a little bit about yourself. She is going to talk about the importance of aftercare. And uh, for individual and family therapy, post-treatment, will give suggestions for all ages. She's got a wealth of experience uh, in all kinds of fields of mental health. She was, um, uh, before she came to um, Foundation, she worked at St. Jude's for 14 years in all kinds of capacities there. She is originally from Canada. She came to Georgia and got her undergraduate degree, UGA, and uh, been here ever since, right? Yep. And she's an avid kayaker. So uh, I'm going to pray for you, Laura, and then welcome you up. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Laura's commitment to continue to come back to speak to our group year after year, Lord, and just pray that you'll continue to bless the work of her hands, the ministry that you've given her. Pray that you'll bless um, foundations and Talbot and all those that are employed there that they may be able to reach comfort and help and encourage all the patients that they have. Father, we just thank you for her being here. Just pray, Lord, that you will speak through her in a mighty way, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Hello. So I am not going to just lecture. I really prefer an interactive uh, talk. So please do not wait till the end to ask questions. Raise your hand. And if I don't see you, wave, do something, jump up. I will get to you. Um, but that's the way I like to do my presentations. I'm not a lecturer. It's just not my thing. Um, I chose aftercare because to me, one, it's my most favorite group that I do. I have been doing um, one of the aftercare groups at Foundations for um, whew, eight years now, and it is by far my most favorite group. I mean, I love doing group with all of the new patients in the day and in the evening program, but to work with folks who have completed our program and who are now facing the challenges of everyday life and watching them to come in and get through all the things that they're doing. I mean, in the time that I've been doing this group, I've watched a young woman come in who had really struggled with alcoholism. She has changed jobs for the better. She has gotten married. I mean, we, we got through that. Um, you know, planning the wedding and everything. And, and, and now she's getting ready to, to start a family. So to watch someone blossom um, from someone who couldn't, you know, she didn't think that she was going to be able to make much of herself. And now, when you look at her, it's just phenomenal. Another person who came in who was legally blind because of her alcohol use. I mean, we don't think that that can happen, but it does. And she got her sight back. She got her license back. She's getting married now. You know, she's moving on. Um, you know, people are getting promotions. Uh, wonderful things are happening with their families, trips. So for me to be able to watch that and to be a part of that journey is, there, there's no amount of money that you could pay me. I mean, I would do that for free. That is my, like I said, my favorite group. And it's so important because they don't have to come to aftercare. This is a component that we offer and that a lot of facilities offer that it's not required. These people choose to come and they choose to come constantly. And if they can't show up, I get a phone call. I can't be there. I mean, we've got people that have been attending this particular group for 13, 14 years. They don't need to come. They've stayed sober, but this is a touchstone for them. This is important. It's very different than going to an AA meeting or a smart recovery meeting because we do something very different in there, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But that component has been so important to them. And then when I look at the family groups that we've done, and that's also a different dynamic. And being having the opportunity for a family member to come in and talk with other family members freely and to be able to do that in a very non-shaming way and cross-talking which you can't do a lot of times now on because there's rules right I don't we don't have those kinds of rules in aftercare I mean it's 
really we want to get down to the, the nitty-gritty and help each other out. So that's why we really, I really wanted to talk about that today. So aftercare is really the next step following residential and outpatient programs. So typically what you're going to see is someone goes into residential, they do the detox, they do the res for about 30, 45 days, and then they tend to go to IOP, PHP, and then they go into the aftercare. So this is really a difficult time because when they're in early recovery, they've been told what to do, when to do it, they've been drug screened, there's a lot of accountability put in place for them even in the outpatient programs. And so when they're finished with that, it's a scary proposition to think about now who's going to hold me accountable. You know, I've got to do this on my own. And they've got to really, you know, use the tools that we've taught them and hope that it works. And so that's why I think aftercare is so important to be able to come back and talk about what's happening and what's going on. Um, there are expectations that not only the patient has, but also the family has as to what the next steps are and how they should look. So a lot of folks think, well, when I finish treatment, everything's fine, I can go back to normal, the only difference is I don't drink or use. The families, you fix them. So I get this person back, they should go back to doing all the things that I think that they should be doing, and life is not going to change other than they're not going to drink or use. It's not the case. So that's why it's important that not only the patient who's attended treatment, but the family's doing some kind of aftercare. A lot of common thoughts, like I said, I should be able to handle this because I've graduated. And we see that happen a lot with first timers. And then they'll call us and say, okay, this happened. I, I think I need to either step up, come back in, I need to do something different. Um, and then the family, he's completed treatment. He doesn't have to go to meetings anymore. I think my favorite one was, you know, can't they take a vacation from meetings? Does he have to go to so many meetings now? Yeah, if, if that's what's helped keeping him sober, yeah, that's what he needs to be doing, and, and we need to support that and figure out how to work that into your family life. Um, for some people, they've been very successful at attending just 12-step meetings or similar support meeting and working with a sponsor, and that's their aftercare. Um, and so some of those meetings are going to be smart recovery, dharma, um, and the 12 steps celebrate recovery. Um, for some, attending meetings, working with an individual or family therapist meets their needs. And then for some, they need a little bit more. And so that's where the aftercare support groups are really important. Because like I said, it's a very different animal. We're not in there just doing, you know, you share and then you sit down. We're sharing, we're giving feedback, we're talking, we're working through things. We're solving problems. Um, each person's aftercare is going to be uniquely their own. So you can't compare, you know, what yours is. If you are in recovery, well, this is what I did for my program. You should be doing the same thing as my, you know, son, my daughter, my spouse. It doesn't work that way. Everyone's program is going to be very unique and very different because it has to be individualized. It has to work for them. You know, one of the things, uh, one of my guys, he said, I don't know exactly what it is that keeps me sober. It's, there's a lot of things that he does, but I'm not changing it. You know, I've cut back on some of it because he now has uh, six years. But he still does a component of each of those. You know, he still does some of them. Um, so it's not going to be just one thing. And I decided to do a little bit of research. And so I found the study, Continuing Care Research, what we've learned and where we're going. And he found that um, some patients do well in traditional specialty care settings and are happy to do such programs to receive continued care, but others are not willing to do that. Um, they're not willing to continue on, possibly because of the stigma, possibly because they just have tired of treatment. And I'm sure you've heard that a lot. I'm tired, I don't wanna do this anymore, I'm done. And so we have to look and be creative at a, a lot of different avenues. And unfortunately, COVID, you know, that was not something we all love to have happen, but it has forced us to look at different ways to provide continuing care after care for our patients. And I think it's been an amazing experience, at least for, our, for me and for our patients. Um, so there's increasing recognition that many individuals simply do not like the aspects of traditional treatment programs. So we've got to be creative in looking at what we can do to help them with that. So the variety of ways that aftercare, continuing care can be provided 
those two words are used interchangeably, aftercare, continuing care. Um, so it can be with a primary care physician, um, possibly checking in with them with medications, doing some brief check-ins, um, outpatient psychiatric counseling, um, so either working with a psychiatrist and a therapist, one or the other, both. Um, and those are usually the ones that are on medication, needing to have some med management. Telehealth groups, um, individual family sessions, peer support groups, and that is our gift from COVID. We had to scramble. I had 48, basically 48 hours of work days and then the weekend to get our programs, two programs ready to go on telehealth. And we did it. And we, got our, and we were worried because we thought there's going to be a lot of people that don't understand how to do Zoom. It's going to be a bit of a nightmare. It wasn't as bad as we thought. And we were actually able to reach people who were far away, who couldn't come in because of transportation, or who had COVID-19 but didn't have severe symptoms, but they still needed treatment. And so being able to do that and then being able to offer them the aftercare. So that never stopped. So their care was seamless from residential to outpatient and then to the aftercare component. And we're continuing to do that. Um, working with a peer recovery specialist, such as those provided by a program called MAP. I don't know if you guys have heard of MAP before. It's an amazing, it's an amazing company. I hadn't heard of them until a couple of years ago. And what they do is they work with the individual and the family and they provide a peer specialist who has usually their, their certified addiction counselor and they do FaceTime with that patient on a regular basis and they do FaceTime with the family. They're there for emergencies. So they really provide a lot of extra support so when someone has relapsed or someone is really struggling they've got an additional support system in place for them. I mean, I've even used it when I couldn't reach a patient and I was very concerned about what was going on and had sent the police out to do a wellness check, wouldn't answer the door. I called the MAP person who had been, uh, you know, partnered with that particular patient. Patient answered the phone for them mm -hmm. and at least we were able to get that person safe to the hospital and treated and everything turned out really well. So. I think we've been really good in terms of being creative and finding ways to provide with technology some additional aftercare support. And like I said, alumni groups which are, which are, which are either peer-led or clinically read, cl clinician-led. So I lead, I'm a licensed therapist, I lead two groups, um, but then when I'm not there, that group knows how to lead themselves. I'm able to just say, you know, you're going to be the moderator for tonight and you know you guys know what to do and they do a great job and they hold each other accountable and they don't hold back and so those kind of groups are really important in the person's recovery and I will say the folks that I see with long-term recovery are the ones that were involved in some sort of aftercare the ones that are not doing anything they're usually not enjoying life very much they're white knuckling it or they're relapsing on and off. So to have that support, to have that ability to work through whether it's a death in the family or positive things, you know, getting married, buying a new house, um, having a baby or going through a divorce. I've gone through all of that with the folks in group and to watch them have that support inside that group but also outside. So they don't just work within my group. They have each other's phone numbers, contact information, and they help in, and support each other outside and build really strong relationships, and it's important. So what the evidence has been telling us is that it's convincing evidence that continuing care can be effectively effective in sustaining the positive effects of the initial phase of care. Moreover, there appear to be several important take-home messages regarding what kind of continuing care are likely to be most effective, at least for the typical patient. Now, not every, like I said, every patient is going to be very different. We have to work and figure out what that plan is going to be for them. And so when we do a relapse prevention plan, whether it's through foundations or any other facility, the relapse prevention plan for their aftercare is going to be uniquely for that individual. It's going to be uniquely tailored with meetings of whatever kind. Um, and and I, I just have to interject with the meetings. I think it's been amazing with 
telehealth and having the online 12-step meetings and other meetings where you can attend a meeting in Australia. You can attend a meeting in China. You can attend a meeting anywhere you want to go. I mean, I've got someone who wanted to get back into speaking French because that's what she, you know, she took that in school. She's now going to meetings in Paris every day. She's got herself her 12 and 12. She's got her big book all in French. And she's loving it. And she's engaging. And so now when, when we're allowed to travel internationally and she can go, she's even got people that she can be, you know, be friends with over in Paris and meet and, you know, have some support when she's on vacation. I mean, that's pretty cool. I've got someone who's actually even doing, he's doing the entire alphabet of the states. <laughs> so he, every week he tells me, you know, this is the letter I'm on and this is, I visited this state and, and they do all their meetings very differently. So I think it's been really cool to be able to do that. Al-Anon has the same thing. There are meetings all over the world. So you can travel wherever you want and you don't even have to leave the comfort of your living room. You can sit in your lazy boy, your couch, wherever you want to be, and attend those meetings. And if you don't want to show your screen, you don't have to show your screen. Um, so first, in terms of the things um, for continuing care and being effective, is interventions with a longer plan duration of therapeutic contact appear to hold the advantage over shorter interventions. I think that that's the same thing as the longer a person is in treatment, the better success we're going to have. The longer they're participating in an aftercare, the better their success is going to be. Do they have to attend every week? That's up to them. Um, but what I see is that most people want to attend if they become attached to that group and attached to those people. And that's their family. That's their home group. And so they want to be a part of that. And when they miss, they get upset. Well, I didn't find out about such and such, and I missed this. And they want to get caught up on what's going on. So the longer they're participating in that, that's where I'm seeing the sobriety. The longest sobriety I have in the group that I run is 14 years. Does that person have to come every week? No. Did that person attend group uh, last night while he was on vacation? He sure did. He called in because he wanted to be with his people. And I think that that's amazing. And he doesn't have to do this. It's not a requirement. but it provides them with a touchstone. It's grounding. Secondly, interventions that feature more active and direct attempts to bring the treatment to the patient. So with telehealth, we've been able to really come to your home. And it's also provided us with the ability to see what's going on in the home. Because we're, you know, we've asked you to be in a quiet room, but that doesn't always happen. People come in and interrupt. Um, I've done an assessment where the dad came walking in and needed something out of this drawer. And I, Hello, you know. So things happen. Children get on. I've met a lot of kids who thought we were very interesting to see all of those people on the screen. So they come in. But being able to provide that in that setting so that childcare is not a barrier. You know, you can't say, "Well, I don't have a babysitter, or I didn't have a ride." All you have to have is a phone, a tablet, or a computer. And most people have one of those. And they are able to get on, which is pretty amazing. Um, and then secondly, interventions that feature, sorry, third, um, more aggressive attempts to remain in contact with the patient for extended periods of time. So that's where MAP can follow up and really be a, a great advocate for that patient and making sure that they're engaged, following up with them on a regular basis. Um, one of the things that they have done um, here in Georgia is that um, our patients are able to get 30 days free of MAP and then afterwards um, there's a small fee but I mean to be able to have that kind of support we try to gauge it so that they're gonna begin that when they nearing completion so that they have as much support after they've been with us um, but I think it's a great component and we've had a lot of patients who've continued to do that there are other avenues that you can get similar services um, and then there's also Soberlink, which has provided some good support for folks. Uh, do you guys know what Soberlink is? No? So Soberlink is a breathalyzer that is used, and it, it helps both the family and the patient because the family can set it up. The family has whoever that person wants to have control, 
and they set up when that person is to be tested. That person cannot hand that breathalyzer off. I can't give it to you and have you blow into it for me because it's facial recognition. So it's immediately going to say that I'm, I'm failing the test because I have passed it off and it's not my face. So it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool thing to, to have happen, especially when you've got someone who's distance-wise and, you and you're maybe not a, there and you want to help monitor them. And it provides some accountability because they know that they're going to be tested. They don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to be random. You set it up. Or sometimes their therapist set it up, however you guys want to do that. Laura, are these all things that you um, say I'm new to aftercare? Mm -hmm. Would you say, well, John, let me tell you what we got, and then let me tell you some other options like the sober link, like the maps. Do you educate the, the, the patients, for lack of a better word, about all those things? Yes. So we start on day one, day of admission. So we get all of the, you know, we get them registered for MAP. It's their choice. They don't have to, but so we. That's free for the first 30 days? Mm -hmm. What did you say that stood for? I don't know what it stands okay. for. It's just MAP. That's all I know. <laughs> MAP. Mm -hmm. And then Soberlink, we are able to, we um, work with that company, so we're able to get them um, connected. And so we can get them the device, and if they choose to continue using it, um, then they would have to pay for that, but I'm able to provide that while they're in treatment with us if we need to. to the that's Whoever we decide. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got two people right now who I'm on the list to get the results. Their wife is on the list to get the results, and um, their outside therapist is on the list to get the results. So they get to pick and choose who gets the results. But I immediately get it at the end of the day. These are how many tests were asked for, these are how many tests were positive, how many were negative, and how many were missed. So I think it's a pretty good deal, especially in early recovery. And if you're going to be gone, so if you have a family member and you're going to be traveling, that's always a big deal. Oh, I want to make sure that that person's safe. That's an option to look at. Yeah. Yes. MAP stands for Managing and Adapting Practice. Thank you. Way to go, Jay. <laughs> it was designed to address a concrete problem encountered in modern behavioral health care, improving outcomes and quality of care. And it does a great job. And I think it's been really beneficial for our patients to have that extra support. And especially our young adults, if you call a young adult, do they answer the phone? Right. So texting, you know, they will text with them. They'll FaceTime you, but they won't answer the phone. That boggles my mind. And I, I know if I have to find a young adult, call me. It's the only way I can get them because they're, they're not going to pick up that phone. But with the FaceTime and with the texting, they're able to do that and get that support. And then the family, so the parent or the spouse, is able to also get some family support from the MAP specialist that they're assigned to. And if they don't work out with that MAP specialist, they can get a new one. If they conflict, they can be reassigned. It's not a big deal. So what happens in alumni and aftercare group? Continuing to look at, to learn about triggers. So yes, they've identified triggers. They've figured out what they think are their, all of their triggers when they went in residential. And then when they get to outpatient, they find some more. And then as they begin to experience life without treatment, they begin to experience even more and identify more. And triggers are not people, places, and things. It is our reaction and response to people, places, and things. John cannot cause me to relapse, but my reaction, my response to our interaction or something, that would give me a reason but a person can't cause you to relapse. I, I haven't met someone who's been held down, and I mean, yes, there are very few, but for the most part, no one has been held down and you have to smoke this and you have to drink this. Um, it's been in their hand and they drank it. Um, so I think that, you know, that that is important to know that it's not person, place, or thing, it's the responses, the reactions. A house is not, Something a house can't make you use. Houses don't have that kind of power. 
but your memories associated with that house, what has gone on in that house. You know, just as when we ask people to change, you know, people, places, and things, it's because you have associated memories, associated um, think feelings with that particular person. If all you've done is use with that person, then that's all you have really to talk about. That's all you've known each other about. So it's important to have new people in your life. Okay? Coping with stressors and cravings. So everyone seems to think that all that goes away because you've completed treatment, you got your certificate, we had a little nice graduation ceremony. No. You're going to have cravings, you're going to have stressors, you're still going to have using dreams. And so to be mindful of that, and so we talk about that you know, in the groups and how to deal with that and how to deal with things differently. You know? And sometimes they forget even the simple skills of, you know, don't assume that that's what that person meant. Ask them. So tell me your name. Lori. So Lori, if you and I are talking and I feel like you are threatening me, I need to make sure that what I think I'm hearing is the truth. So I, I need to say, Lori, is, this is what I'm hearing. Is that right? And then you can clarify. But we have to remind our patients about those kinds of things because they get in the situations, particularly at home with their loved ones, and they go back to thinking, oh, this is how it used to be and get defensive on both sides, not just the patient, but also the family member. And we're going to get to the family in just a second. But helping them to remember to use their coping skills. And so we talk about that. We practice that in the group. Um, looking at stressors, because there's a lot of new stressors. A lot of times you're going back to work. They've been out on FMLA for a while. So now they're going back to work or now they're looking for a job they're interviewing. Some of them have never dated sober. Some of them have never had, um, you know, intimate relations sober. That's a big deal. We got to talk about that. You know, some of them have never taken care of their children sober. They don't know what's going on. It's a big deal. How do you deal with that? Because that can be stressful. You know, learning how to handle that, paying the bills, just life. Learning how to do all those things. Can a person, and I realize we're talking about aftercare, mm -hmm. after a detox, maybe 30, 45 days, are they still cognizant and a reasonable mind to process the data and information that has been, they've been receiving throughout all that time frame? to where it actually is absorbed? So what we call it is planting seeds. So we repeat a lot with them while they're in treatment. And they'll come from resident, I've heard that. We already had this lecture at residential. I know, but I think you could hear it again because I think you might learn something different. Just like when you watch a movie. If you watch a movie several times, you pick up different things. We're going to repeat the same things and so that they're going to catch it. We're just going to do it differently. And so they may not completely comprehend everything at the very beginning, but as we continue, we're changing behaviors. So hopefully that will help the brain retrain. And so we continue to do that in aftercare because post-acute withdrawals last six to nine to 12 months. So be aware of that. So post-acute withdrawals, pause, so, I mean, that's memory issues. Um, it can be issues with reading. It can be issues with simple math, clumsiness, um, irritability. Also, there's, there's a lot of different symptoms. But post-acute withdrawals last up to 12 months. Sometimes they can go longer, depending upon the person's length of use and frequency and amount and the damage that they've done. And some of the damage is not, you know, cannot be fixed when we're talking about brain damage and other health and some of it can our brain is pretty amazing and can repair a lot but not completely there are going to be some things that's just not going to happen and also as we are moving on with getting more synthetics and folks are using stuff um, that we don't even have names for you know those are the ones that scare me when I'm meeting with someone and they tell me the chemical compound and this is the here, you write down what you've been using because I don't know what this is. 
but I've watched it permanently damage someone's brain and it's not coming back. So again, it's going to be dependent upon what they've been using and for how long. And we don't know what the substances are because, you know, we can drug test them, but prior to them coming to us, we don't know what substances they've been using. And because only the person who's concocted the substance themselves knows what they put in there, if they're even aware, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, thinking and working through outcomes of a relapse. Relapse is going to happen. What I do like about folks who are participating in some level of aftercare is when there's a relapse, it typically is very short-lived. They come back in, okay, this is what's happened. I need help. I need to make some changes. And as a group, we can do that. And it's non-shaming, and we can be really helpful to that person and supportive so that it's not, you know, I have to go in and face this group of 50 people I can come in to my family, my recovery family, and I can share what's going on, and you know, we're gonna be okay. I had one gentleman, he, he said, I was so scared, I didn't wanna come back for a week because I had relapsed, and I, I didn't wanna disappoint. I didn't wanna disappoint you, and I didn't wanna disappoint the group. I said, you're never gonna disappoint me. I just want you to come and be honest and let us help you. And he says, okay, so what do we do differently? I said, you get your behind in group and we'll figure it out and so as a group we came up with a plan not Laura but the group helped him come up with a plan and I had him write it all down and he implemented it and he's done really well but it wasn't just me doing it it was his peers helping him and then he added some components to that and I think it was again a unique prevention plan for him and it's a unique aftercare plan and it's working so whatever works for him I'm happy, and so is his wife. She's she's quite thrilled. Or it is I've always struggled with the seed being planted that you're going to have a relapse. Mm -hmm. And uh, does that plant the seed that yeah you know, yeah I'm going to relapse? It's just a matter of when. So what's the big deal? I'm going to relapse mm -hmm. as opposed to thinking and working through the outcome if you relapse. Right. As a, instead of assuming you will. So our goal is let's not, and that's not our plan is for you to relapse. However, it happens. It does happen sometimes. It doesn't have to, have, have to happen to everybody. So I don't think that that plants a seed because one of the things that we talk about is, yeah, you know, you may have another relapse in you. I don't know if you have another comeback. I don't know if you have another get out of jail card free, you know. I don't know that you really want to take that risk. Because let's, let's look at the last relapse and what, what happened. You multiply that by 10, that's what's going to happen. So we try to make sure that they're educated on that, but then I also don't want to shame them and say, if you relapse, you can't come back. Because I want them to come back, and I want them to come back as quickly as they can. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, it's like cancer. We want to do everything we can to get the cancer out, but there is a possibility of the cancer coming back and we might have missed something. You know, we're talking about humans. They're going to make some bad choices sometimes. We all make poor choices. They're not bad people. They're not stupid. They just made a poor choice. And in a panic moment, this is what happened. And then there are the ones who think, okay, well, they, they do plan it. I'm going to be able to use normally. That never works out. I mean, I've even had a physician, physician, this is a smarty pants. And he's like, I, I have researched it. I, he laid out his plan. I said, that, that, that sounds like you've done a lot of work there. But I know your history, and that hasn't worked out too well. He said, well, this is what I want to do. I said, okay, you can do that. However, you can't be a part of this group while you're going to actively drink. When you choose to do something different, when you're ready, come on back. He did a year later. It did not work. But he needed to prove that to himself. And I, we've got a lot of researchers. I mean, I've had people come in with spreadsheets. They charted out the amounts 
and this is how long I was able to stay clean and, and that's a lot of energy a lot I hate spreadsheets I can't imagine doing that to prove a point for like that just I no, that's just not what I would want to do um, and keep your laps from turning into a relapse so again one day come back in we talk about it let's get moving on let's make some changes we don't have to make this a long drawn-out relapse you used once all right let's figure out what didn't work and what do we need to do to add to it so that you can be more supported be more accountable my goal is not to make you the family members the warden okay that is not my goal um, a lot of times they they're like well then just let them know you have to be accountable too this has to work both ways so that is never my goal for you to be the person in charge of their recovery they are in charge of their recovery and they know what to do you are a part of it and I always want patients to include you in their prevention plan write it with them you know so that the family's aware of it work together so that this is not a secret have it posted somewhere so that you can work together Yes. Do you work with uh, family members and parents as well for their own recovery program or to um, have their own aftercare uh, protocols that they need to follow? Yeah, that's next. Sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> you're reading my mind. Laura, I got one more question. Yes. On that line. Mm -hmm. you know, we get a lot of questions over the years from parents that say, well, if Johnny relapses, do we have to put him, put him right back into treatment? Does he have to go back into a 30-day program? If you're already in aftercare and you relapse, I guess it depends on how long you've relapsed. Right. So we assess it. Who, who assess, you assess that? So if, if, say, they're participating in one of our groups, and I'm going to assess that with their clinician and with the team and make a decision. You know, if it's, was a, this was a one-time deal, we're back on the track and this and he's got a plan he or she's got a plan in place and this is what we're going to do okay now if someone needs detox then yeah you're going to need to go to detox if someone needs to go to residential because they've been out there for a period of time and it's appropriate then yeah but we're going to assess it not every every relapse is going to require that they be readmitted right so we've had many parents say okay our kid was clean he got stoned over the weekend he had been you know pot free for three months what do we do now right it was a weekend of you know just smoking weed with his buddies and we just usually say talk to your you know your counselor you know we're not skilled to give that advice but so many parents are worried that it's going to be a it's going to be blown out of proportion and yep everybody's going to overreact but that's where the aftercare team comes in and yeah and and i even tell them let's not panic because a lot of times our patients are very concerned. I don't want to tell them, you know, if I've relapsed and I've used and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I realize my mistake and I'm trying to do things better because they're going to lock me up. They're going to do this. Let's talk about it. Let's make a plan. We don't have to panic. Also, you're going to think about using. And I encourage them and all of our staff encourages them to talk about that. Just because your child says, I want to use, doesn't mean that they're going to, doesn't mean you need to lock them in their room, get the interventionist, get them to treatment, and let's talk about it. They're having a thought. That doesn't mean we have to act on it. They're acknowledging it. That right there takes away a lot of power from that thought. They're putting it out there. They're getting honest, and that's so important. And then we can begin to work through it. Well, what brought that on? what was going on have you been thinking about this for a while I mean there's a lot of things to, to take into consideration use the support systems that are in the community you know that's why I think aftercare is so important but if they're working with a therapist if they've worked with a psychiatrist whatever the support system is let's get them you know in line and figure out what do we need to do differently you know you can do drug testing if you feel like you know you can do some random testing um, that you can do Soberlink if it's alcohol. Um, there are medications to help with opiates. Um, unfortunately, there's not much with stimulants. We don't have any medications that help reduce the cravings for stimulants. 
that hasn't come out yet. I'm hopeful that that will come out soon. Um, but there's a lot of different options. So that it doesn't have to be you lock them right back up. And don't panic when they tell you that they've thought about drinking or using. The fact that they're telling you, that's, that's a huge step. Because they, they typically would not tell you anything and they would just lie. So the fact that they're telling you, they trust you enough, let's talk about it. What's going on? You know, do you need to get to a meeting? I'll, I'll be happy to take you there. You don't even have to drive them. You can get online and go to a meeting. You know, there's lots of things that they can do. I would think they're already filled with shame for relapsing. Yeah, and so we don't need to punish them. You know, I when they come and tell me, thank you. You know, we had someone the other day um, in, in aftercare, and, and they, they shared that they'd had a relapse. And he said, I felt so ashamed. And the group said, we are so grateful that you shared that with us because that helps us. It reminds us how fragile our recovery is, and we're here to support you. What do you need? Do you need to call someone, you know, once a day? I can give you my number. That would be great. Okay. And they exchanged numbers. You know, those kinds of things can happen. So we don't want to shame them. We don't want to punish. This is really about having more open communication. It's so important. And just don't panic. The biggest thing I can tell you is don't panic. And if you've been down this before, you know panic is not going to help you. Let's talk it through. Let's take a moment. And when you're talking with them, I encourage you to not be standing. Get into a comfortable chair. Have them get into a comfortable chair. Make sure the TV's off, music's off. There's no other distractions, and you can sit and talk it through. There's to be no yelling. Let's just have a conversation. And what can we do to support you? Okay. Aftercare for the family. So aftercare programs help provide support and instructions for family members of recovering addicts. Many times there's still a great deal of tension between the individual and the family caused by events that occurred during the period of drug use. Other times the individual is struggling to blend back into normal life, which is causing stress for the family. In both cases, aftercare programs provide counseling and advice for the family to help them get through the difficult times. That's why I like family group when the patients are not there. I know sometimes we've done it combined, um, at least with foundations we did it combined. I think the parents probably got a lot more and the spouses got more when their loved ones weren't there because they could talk openly and freely and not worrying about what, so, you know, he's hearing this or she's hearing that or, you know, this is, they're worried about what they're thinking and all of that kind of stuff. You need the same thing. You need a place where you can come and remove your mask, be authentic, be genuine, and share what's going on. Share how scared you are. Scared how angry, share how angry you are. Share how happy you are. Whatever it is that's going on, ask for help. What I love about family groups is typically, just like the um, aftercare support groups for our patients, we have parents or family members who have loved ones with varying times of sobriety. And we have family members who have been down this road a lot, and then some who, this is their very first time, and you can tell them when they come in the room. They're deer in headlights, they're scared. And I try to remind the patients they're scared because they don't want you to die. That is their biggest fear, and that's why they tend to suffocate, that's why they do the sniff test when they give you a hug when you come in the door. Now, you all know you've done that, right? <laughs> you know, and you know, the checking of you know, the room, and all, there's a lot of things that happen. They're doing it because they're scared and they care. And it feels an invasion of your privacy, but that's the only thing that they know to do to make sure that you're safe. You know, I've had parents do tracking devices. That's always interesting. Yep. I've had one, not only tracking where the person was, tracked money, where it went, how much was removed. I mean, it, I was, I was like, wow, this is a full-time job. How are you getting your full-time job done? I mean, you know every movement she has made. You know she hasn't left her dorm. And now you know she hasn't gone to class, too. So 
there are things that you can do, but also, you know, we, we try to let them know that you're doing it to be supportive, but sometimes it feels like they're smothering. So there are ways that we can kind of compromise so that you can feel safe because they're doing the right thing and also they're not bringing anything that's dangerous into your home. And that's the other piece I like to educate them on is they don't want that kind of stuff in their house. And that's their home. <coughs> and so they have a right to say, you can't bring so-and-so in this house. You can't bring this kind of stuff in my house. That's, when you get your own home, that's fine. But you're coming in to, to Lori's home, and that, that's her home, and, and those are her rules. And you need to abide by them. Now, we may need to work on some of the rules and make sure that it's appropriate and that the boundaries are not unrealistic. I know one of the talks I did here a couple of years ago was about expectations and what people expected of their, their loved ones. A lot of the expectations were things that you couldn't even do for yourself, like complete honesty. We've, we've all told a little white lie every now and then. Everyone has speeded at one point or another, so you've broken the law, right? You've, somebody has always put that orange juice back into the refrigerator with this much left and said, I didn't do it. So don't expect from somebody else what you can't do yourself, okay? Um, aftercare for family members. So they can include one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions for partners, spouses, or children. Um, group therapy meetings for family members, educational programs to provide information on the nature of addiction and mental illness, 12-step programs like Al-Anon, Naranon for family members. I don't know that SMART and Dharma have come up with family programs yet, but I'm sure that that's coming. Um, addiction and mental illness can create financial instability in a household as well as emotional conflict. So needing assistance with practical things like job placement, nutritional counseling, child care, all of those things, you know, we can help you find out in the community so that you can get some resources. So it's important to be able to ask about that. And then a lot of times what it's great is that the people that are in your group do some of those things or know people who do those things and can give you, here, I need you to call Joe. He can help you with this or call Sue or whatever it is because they're aware or they've already gone down that road before. What your group looks like, very much like theirs. It should be, because you're working your own program of recovery. You're going on this, you know, along with them. Yes, there's the identified patient who we worked with, but it's a family, family disease, it's a family disorder. You know, that's why we have impact letters written, because they were not the only one impacted by this disease. Mom was impacted, dad was impacted, siblings were impacted, grandparents were impacted, you know, the dog was impacted. Everyone, and the dog's not gonna write a letter, but you know, everyone was, the whole family was impacted. Your friends were impacted. I've had some friends write amazing impact letters because the person didn't have any family around to be able to do that. And so it's really important that that person's support is involved in the family program. And family doesn't have to be blood. It's who they identify as family, okay? So continuing to learn about your triggers. Take your own inventory, don't take theirs. You know, look at what's triggering you emotionally. Returning not to drinking or using, but returning to old behaviors. And then sometimes we do see family members identifying, maybe I have a problem too. And they don't like to identify that because that's really uncomfortable. Because we focused over here for so long, that felt good. Now the focus is on my drinking or where I'm smoking. I'm fine, I'm working, I'm doing everything okay. So those are things to be looking at, you know. Are you returning to old behaviors and how is that impacting the, this other person? Coping with stressors and life changes. The person who's come back home is different, is acting different, behaving different, has different boundaries, communication skills. Hopefully, we worked really hard on that, so hopefully you're gonna see something very different and that's gonna feel very odd to you, especially if it's your spouse. You know, you've been with that person for some time and now they're, they're changed. When it's your child, 
you've raised this, this person and you know how they behave and then they come back and they're very different. Hopefully a little bit more mature. Hopefully. Right? Um, thinking and working through the outcome of a relapse. So that's what we kind of talked about was looking at how does the family address a relapse. We don't have to have a family intervention all the time. We can have a conversation. I like the word conversation because it is less shaming. It's, it doesn't create any defenses. We're just going to sit down and have a talk. We're just going to have a conversation about what, went ha what happened, what went on, and what can we do to support each other. I think that that's the biggest thing is identifying what you need from, for su support from them and what they need from you. You're going to guess based on what you want. So when I think about how to support someone, if I don't ask them, I'm going to go by, this is how I like to be supported. Well, they may not like that. It's kind of like the, the five love languages, right? Everyone's very different. So you need to ask, you know, Jose, how can I best support you? You know, as your daughter, how can I best support you as we go through this, you know, recovery? And this is what I need from you. And this is what it looks like. Be explicit. This is what my support looks like for me. You know, you asking me about this and spending time with me, whatever it is, make sure that you're talking about that. But it has to go both ways. Okay? You need support as well because you've been through a lot. You've been through so much with them and not knowing what's going to happen and being scared that it's important that they are able to support you. And so come to some common ground and figure that out. It is helpful if you have a therapist that can help you work through that, but a lot of times you can do it yourselves. And then they can come back and either talk about it in group, this worked out, this didn't, okay, well let's maybe approach it this way and go back and talk about it, okay? Um, keeping the lapse um, from turning into a relapse. So being aware that a minor slip doesn't, again, have to turn into a major relapse. You don't have to freak out, but let's talk about it and let's look at what we can do differently. You know, if part of the relapse is there's been a lot of alcohol in the house, maybe we need to remove that. You know, be open to doing that. Be willing to not have that in the house. Be willing to not have it sitting out on the counter. You know, be willing to not, you know, have it so visible for that person. I love it when they say, I've locked it up, and it's not locked up, it's just in the garage and the uh, workbench. You know, let's, they're going to find it. So let's, let's think about that and, and be supportive. And I also tell them, if your family is willing to not drink around you and to remove everything, and you're like, oh, no, 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 I don't want them to change, that is their way of supporting you. Allow them to do that. They're willing to do that. That's amazing. Allow them to do that. But again, you got to talk about it. You got to communicate. Lastly, what aftercare to me is it's the most valuable thing is because it provides a channel of communication. Um, the patient and family members undergo many changes in behaviors and thought processes. You guys both work on rebuilding relationships, starting new ones and to have a safe space for you where you can remove the mask, be authentic, be genuine, and where you're welcomed, loved, understood, and held accountable. That's what aftercare is about. And so there's many avenues to find that, and I encourage you all to find your form of aftercare, because it's important. It's your recovery is, is just as important as your, your family members. So thank you. Any other questions? The young adults separate from the older adults, or do you mix them? All we mix them. Okay. So we um, do when we do process group, which is group therapy. So we um, have certain days where it's young adult and wise. We don't say older adult. Wise adult. Wise adult. <laughs> we coined that phrase. They, they like that better. Then we have men and women's groups, and then we have in a committed relationship and single because everyone has different things that they need to be talking about. What I love about having young guys with older guys, young, young women with older women, is what they learn from each other. 
And I think my favorite story, and I may have told it in here before, is we had a woman, she had to have been in her 70s, maybe 80. I don't want to be in there with those young kids. I don't have anything in common. Well, guess who she wanted to sit by every day? An 18-year-old. That became, I mean, the two of them, I couldn't get them apart. And the way that they supported each other appropriately, and they learned, she learned so much from this young adult, and that young adult learned so much from her, it was a beautiful relationship. And then you have issues where, you know, this has been really helpful to, you know, I'm working on some issues with my dad. So to have someone who's in that group of the same age as that person's dad, so that they can begin to work through that and see what a caring relationship could look like, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. So I, we do like to mix it, but we also like to give them their time. Yeah. And we mix the genders, but it is a number one rule. If you have any inappropriate relationships or romantic relationships, I will have to discharge you. And they're told that day of admission. So it's not, that's pretty standard in residential and it's standard in any treatment facility. You do that, that's a non-negotiable, just as if you destroy property. You can't stay. Because it just creates so much havoc. Yeah. How often do you meet generally, Laura, weekly or every other day? Or? For aftercare, um, we have, let's see, Midtown, I have, we've kind of combined because we closed our Roswell office, so I've combined a lot of the groups. But um, I lead two groups a week. We have a third one that we are leading on Tuesday nights also at Midtown. And then Talbot has um, three groups that they lead. So we've got a lot that we can offer. And they can attend like the, the alumni support groups, which is the free part that we provide. They can attend all of them. They, there's four of them. And they can attend all one. How many of they want? So if we're, if we're an aftercare group, we're not alumni, let's just say we're aftercare, do we all meet together or can we go wherever we want, whenever we want? So what happens is when you are an alumni, so you've completed the program and you are now eligible for the alumni group, which is, our, our, is considered aftercare, we tell you these are the options and so you can show up. When we were in person, you would show up on whatever, but typically what a person did was they would try out each group and see where they felt they fit, and then that's the group that they went with, and they kind of just stuck with that group. I've got a couple. They go to Thurman's group on Tuesday night, and they go to my group on Wednesday night. And they, they like having two different leaders, two different approaches, and different sets of people that are there in group with. And if they need more support, I've even had someone attend all three. And I did all three of those groups, and I didn't know what to talk with them about by the third one. I was like, I've seen you now three times in 24 hours. This is pretty good. So hour and a half to two hours. Yep. The one I do on Wednesday night is the longest one, and that's two hours. The other ones are an hour and a half. Is there a curriculum that you go over with? Or? Nope. They set it. So they come in, we check in, they talk, and they, they let us know what certain things that they need to be talking about. And then we come back to that after everyone's checked in and we work through them. I mean, when they come in, I tell you, they're ready to work. It's not playing around. These folks, because they're coming of their own free will, it's very different. They come in, I need to talk about this tonight. I need to go first. Hmm. Or, I, you know, I need some time tonight. And, and we give it to them. And even on virtual, so we've been doing the aftercare for a year now. Um, Last night I had 18, all on my screen, and everyone got time. We did go a little over. I'm bad about that, but I made sure everyone got what they needed. Yes. So they come in, they check in, and they say, uh, I don't know, I have a teenage boy. Um, my mom really ticked me off because, you know, whatever. So he just, that's just what he would yeah so that's usually with this you know I'm having problems with my mom and she she did this and she really upset me she took me off 
they usually use a little bit more colorful language. Um, I'm like, okay, so we're going to come back to that. And so when we, after everyone's kind of checked in, and I know wherever, you know, how many people need time or whatever. So let's talk about what's going on. And so that person will share. I'm not going to be the first person typically to give feedback. I wait for the group. And so they will come in. And so it's really nice having a variety of different ages, genders, experiences. They're able to give a lot of information. And, you know, they really come up with a good plan. And then we sometimes we'll practice. You know, you need to, to be able to talk to your mom. I'll grab someone in the group who's mom's age. Let, you know, especially when we're a person. I'll make them do it right there in the group. So let's talk it out. Let's figure out how to do this. Like that would take forever. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm like, all right. So you're able to kind of get to Oh, it. yeah. If they start circling, I'm like, no, no, no. We need to get to the point. We got 16 other people to get to, so we need to make it zippy fast. But they're really good. They know they want to make sure they don't want to take time from other people, so they really do work hard. This is, I, this is the problem. Help me figure out a solution. Okay, thank you. Now let's move on. And everyone gives feedback openly. I rarely have to pick on anybody to, you know, I just say, does anyone have? Yes. And it just, it just comes. And they're so good about it. And it's, I, I really like watching someone who's 18, 19 get feedback from someone who's 65, 70. And at first, you, you, you know, they're thinking they, they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, they do. And then you watch their eyes just get bigger and they're listening. Okay. And sometimes that's the one that they trust the most. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, because I was in the family group mm -hmm. our, our son went to foundations. And um, when we did the combined group, it was um, people were a little less open at first. But what I found after we had done it for a while, because we kind of transitioned from doing it every other week once a month mm -hmm. and having three weeks of being able to really just connect to your group your family group or them to their own aftercare group and meet once a week that kind of that one time you saw people loosen up a little bit and people that were really serious about their aftercare groups were listening to the parents and vice versa yep. you, were, you saw the change so it was, it was helpful in some ways, but it did, to me, it was more beneficial to have more weeks of your own group. Yeah. And just once in a while mm -hmm. together. I agree. What do you mean by your own group? Like your family group or their aftercare group. You're doing your own set Your own group family therapy is what you're saying? Or no, what we did is we had um, a night, a week, a night, one, we usually did, we started off with one, then we went to two, and then we, I think we went back to one. It was called multifamily. So current patients and alumni patients could be in there with their family members. And so we were all in one big room together. Yeah. I think the big takeaway from it was they, the people in treatment were just as nervous about being together with their family members as the family members yeah. were about having the patients together. Oh, they were. So you started asking questions and started learning from each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I may have missed something, and this may be a dumb question, but there's no dumb question. Okay. So, does someone have to go through your program to come to these groups? Or yes. Is it open to, okay. Yeah. So it's not just for any recovery. No. So the way that we have it set up is it's you've completed one of the foundation's programs, but I know that there are other providers out there that do similar groups. Um, Allison Broderick does one at um, Atlanta Center for Wellness. It's called Accountability Group. And so she provides that, and you can come from any, any place you want um, and attend that group. And it's a drop-in group, um, or you can schedule it with her. So there are other options out there in the community. We did try to do... At the point of recovery. Right. <laughs> my situation, but yeah. I was just curious. Yeah, I, I did try that for a little while making it more open to the community, um, but we didn't have as many patients attending from outside, so, yes. Does insurance cover the cost, or what is the cost? So when, for the alumni groups, we don't charge. 
So is he getting out of a residential facility? So is, are, is he being referred to an outpatient, like a PHP or an IOP program? He's been in there seven days, and I don't, I just talked to him, so I don't have a lot of okay. details. Okay. So that was, that's a question I would want to ask. What is the aftercare plan? So is he going to go to um, outpatient programming? You know, those are the things that I would ask, because that's, that's going to be important for a continuum of care. I know he's not going to outpatient. Okay. Texas. Okay. Well, there's some there's some good facilities out there that can and outpatient programs that can help them out there. But you, there are a, a lot of aftercare groups out there. Um, there's another program called um, Groups Recover, I believe it's what it's called. Um, colleague of mine now works for them. Um, the, the one of the locations is in uh, Nashville, but that's another option to look at. So there, there we're not the only provider, but this is just something that we do for our patients that have completed one of the foundations programs is we provide them with the alumni support groups and we don't charge them for it because they've already gone through, majority of them have gone through residential and then the outpatient. Um, but there are community resources out there. But if he wanted to come or he could, or I could say, hey, I, there's a great group you can join. I can't. Oh, that's not how it works? No, it has, it'd have to have completed our program. Okay, so is your program like a um, residential program? So we have, um, Foundations has um, residential programs. Uh, we have one here in Georgia, it's called Black Bear Lodge. Okay. And then we have um, a facility out in Michigan called Skywood, and then a facility in um, California called Michael's House. And then we have our outpatient programs scattered in the same states. What part of California? The desert, Palm Springs. It's very hot there. No. No, that um, moved, it got merged with uh, another UHS facility. Um, I can't remember the name of the hospital, but they bought that. Laura, what about the family component of aftercare? Mm -hmm. Is that free as well? Or is that a yeah, no, we don't charge for that either. But again, those are for family members who've completed our program. Most treatment programs have family support groups. I know Karen has family support groups here, and I don't know that you have to have gone through a Karen facility. Um, so Martha Scarborough is a good person to reach out to. Um, but if you just Google Karen Atlanta. Yeah, you don't have to have gone through Karen. Yep. And Mar has, I think Mar has those mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of options out there. Just Google away. What is the best way, so I'm moving. I'm kind of in a weird situation. Okay. Right now, and we're my husband just got transferred to Southern California. So okay. Living out there, what is my best option once I get there to look for resources? Should I need them? You know, like he's not in recovery. Right. Actually, I mean, you can take my card. I'm happy to to help you. Um, I've got um, business development folks all over the country. So wherever you're at. They can help you find. It doesn't have to be one of our programs. We'll help you find what's appropriate for you. Yeah. Anything else? And I wish I could take them, but I can't. I'm sorry. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.